Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. How's it going? Hi, Tom. I'm doing really well. I'm very excited to dig into um, this Mireus trilogy with you, Your Face Tomorrow. Yes. So to kind of set up a little bit of what we're going to be doing over the next few episodes, uh, we'll be discussing Your Face Tomorrow, which was published in three volumes um, over the course of a few years. It's one massive 1,250-page book or what have you, but... Um, Nicely consumable in uh, three uh, more discreet physical books. Um, but yeah, so this week we'll be touching on the fir- talking about the first one, um, Fever and Spear. And then uh, next week will be part two. And then um, the final one. The reason it came out this way, I think beyond simply how unwieldy a 1,200-page book might be, is that, and this is just from what I've read, Maria's dedicated this book um, to a number of people, but specifically his uh, father and uh, Sir Peter Russell, both of whom were in ailing health and fairly old at that point. And he really wanted them to see a version of this. So he made the decision with his publisher to start bringing them out in this fashion such that they could actually see what I think Maria's even considered to be sort of his uh, culmination of his work to that point. So that's part of it, which is, I don't know, fairly nice, uh, uh, a very kind gesture for him to make to people who matter so much to him. And I think that's also very fair. Uh, Peter Wheeler, uh, who's a major character in the book and has appeared in in other works that we've come across at this point, uh, Thomas Nevinson, Berta Isla in particular, is based off of Sir Peter Russell. And in this novel, the main character spends an incredible amount of time talking with Wheeler and Wheeler gets a lot of space to expound and fill in his backstory, but also just sort of reflect upon life, what it means to talk, what it means to see. And yeah, I think it's a, I like to think it's a really wonderful thing that uh, Sir Peter Russell had an opportunity to, to dig into that and see what his, um, his friend and mentee, uh, wrote of him. All right, just to kind of quickly set us up, we are hearing from, in this novel, Jock Deza, also known as Jaime Deza, also known as Jack, uh, Jacobo. Everyone has a different name for him, um, but he is also the narrator, um, the, the voice we listen to from All Souls. So this is some pretty strong connective tissue for Marius. Um, Characters have appeared in other novels kind of back and forth a little bit up to this point, but a repeat POV, uh, this is the first time that we've come across that in his work, at least to my knowledge. So this is quite a few years after uh, his time spent teaching at Oxford. Uh, he is in the process of a divorce. I don't believe it's finalized at this point. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's right. They, he, they are separated, he and Louisa. So he has, in order to make the, the process easier on the children, but also um, 
himself and Luisa, he has left Spain, left them behind in Madrid. Uh, they have a son and a daughter, and he's now living in London, working for the BBC, and is invited at the outset of the novel to a uh, buffet supper hosted by Peter Wheeler. Um, Toby Rylands was his uh, his friend, the professor that he was the older professor that he was interacting with at Oxford. Um, Toby at this point has died, but has, as he put it, somewhat passed him along to um, Peter. And Peter's invited him out a few times. But in this specific instance, he wants him to come to this uh, dinner because there's going to be one person in particular there that he would really like, um, Jacobo, as he refers to. I think I'm just going to call him Deza. Otherwise, we're just going to go back and forth with names. <laughs> he, he, he very much wanted uh, Deza to, to meet um, and just kind of get a sense of uh, what, what does Deza think of this guy? I'd really like you to come talk to him and, I don't know, maybe, maybe let me know what your impressions are. Um, and the man's name is Bertram Tupra. Our old friend Tupra. I am more and more convinced that it might be better to see all these novels as like the 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 Tupra Iliad or something along those lines. And um, maybe I'll spend time in a few years going through trying to identify where Tupra is in the background of every single one of Marius's novels. So he's invited out to this party, meets Tupra, and that kind of kind of gets it gets it going. Um, at the party. They don't interact very much at all. There's a Spaniard who's part of the the embassy that's also been invited, uh, De La Garza, who is, I mean, we've talked about this before, that Marius does not necessarily uh, make diplomats look very good in his novels, but Jesus Christ, he just, this guy is a pig, is just disgusting. Yeah, this is one of those guys that in an English home, Wheeler's home, with mostly English-speaking people. This guy is Spanish. He he sees Deza and is like, oh, another Spanish guy, and just kind of like totally hangs on him the entire party and kind of makes all of this weird and actually quite funny at times commentary to him out loud because he thinks that no one else can understand really what he's saying. All of these like crude comments about uh, the guests, particularly sexist comments about some of the women at the gathering. Yeah. Just a real, I guess you'd just say asshole. Absolutely. And um, at one point, uh, Del Garza realizes or periodically realizes, cause he's getting hammered the entire time as well. Um, that, uh, Wheeler's nearby and can speak Spanish, so he keeps slipping into what they refer, what Deza refers to as criminal jargon, like like just you know more and more guttery, more and more slang based. Assuming that Wheeler might not be able to pick up on that, which is largely true. Um, though there is a moment where uh, I don't think I have it marked down, but and I don't need to repeat it. But he makes some comment about like pigs and whores or something like that that catches everyone's attention, and it actually happens in the one moment that Tupra and uh, Deza are really talking, and it everyone's ears perk up because no matter, I mean, even if they don't know what the words precisely translate to, if you're saying them a certain way. Um, and you've comported yourself a certain way throughout the uh, the engagement. They're gonna kind of know what the hell you're, what the hell it is you're talking about. Um, it reminded me of a. Uh, did you ever read Fury by um, 
Salman Rushdie? No. Um, it's one of the few things of Rush. I, that's like a big gap I have is Rushdie. Um, but it's one of the few things I've read by him. And there's a scene where uh, the narrator is in a is in a cab, and um, the guy driving it is speaking. I don't think it's Hindi. It's something else. But he's just a steady like stream of profanity describing everyone around him and how terrible all these drivers are and so on and so on. And they're in New York city. And at, at the end of like the car ride, the narrator is like, Hey man, just so you know, even if they don't speak the language, they can kind of tell when you're calling them sons of bitches and whatnot. Yeah. I think that there's something that's probably universal about the intonation of an insult. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, uh, there's this brief conversation between Tupra and Deza, and he's reflecting on whether or not Wheeler's goal in this party has actually been achieved. The party ends, uh, and there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot of book in between the end of the party and the next morning where Wheeler kind of explains more of what's happening. But basically, Wheeler wanted Deza to come to this party and to kind of analyze Tupra and his uh, date, his um, girlfriend, Beryl, um, or his partner at the party. It's never explicitly stated that girlfriend, that's kind of what Deza assumes. And then Deza proceeds to describe a couple who are already exhausted with each other, would rather be, have all their lives, their lives are separate, rather be, be done with it, have this all behind them, but are some for some reason still occasionally interacting. To which Wheeler says, actually, they're getting divorced. And you just described exactly where they are at their lives without having any real context, barely any information on them. And basically says, like, today's uh, you are like me, and eventually comes out like Toby uh, Rylands, uh, you're able to see. And this is something we've talked about um, in other books, specifically Berta Isla and Tomas Nevinson, this ability for some people to be able to look another person, get sort of a sense of them, and then be able to sort of play out what comes next. Maybe not predict the future, but narrate a, a, a likely outcome for this person's life and, and future actions. Yeah, I thought maybe, if you don't mind, I would read just... A little bit here on it's it's quite early in the book, page eighteen and into nineteen. That kind of I think describes pretty well what Wheeler sees in Deza and this this particular talent he has to be an interpreter of lives. So an interpreter of lives, of their behavior and reactions, of their inclinations and characters and powers of endurance, of their malleability and their submissiveness, of their faint and firm or firm wills, their inconsistencies, their limits, their innocence, their lack of scruples, and their resistance, their possible degrees of loyalty or baseness, and their calculable prices, and their poisons, and their temptations, and also their deducible histories, not past but future, those that had not yet happened, and could therefore be prevented or indeed created. And I think that kind of sets up pretty well kind of this talent that Wheeler sees in Deza, and um, we learn that Tupper recognizes it too. And it kind of sets up the, the novel or the, the title of the whole big project here, Your Face Tomorrow, because it's this kind of ability that Deza has to 
understand implicit things about someone just by a very close study of them and to presumably be able to predict how they would react in the future under certain circumstances. Right. And it's it's something that Tupra clearly values and is of use to his organization. Um, at this point in the uh, Maria's timeline, the group that uh, Tupra was setting up when he re-recruits um, Nevinson at the beginning of Thomas Nevinson is clearly well underway. It's obviously still working for the state, but also for private individuals as well. So Tupra has taken his uh, taken his uh, talents to Miami, as uh, LeBron and whatnot said when they were making that move. <laughs> and they're also clearly looking to recruit people who who can do this. They want a wide range of folks um, that are capable of this and also able to speak multiple languages and and provide them and really be able to spread their net as as wide as uh, as it possibly can. But I would say that like it's interesting in that this isn't the early period of Marius, but we're not quite at the thus bad begins, the infatuations, birdie, like that whole that later portion where they were so much more plot driven to a certain degree. I mean it those novels very much move along. There might be the digressions, there might be the the winding thought processes but they don't take up 50 60 100 pages and that is the majority of this book um and majority of this project is diving into particular ideas following deza's you know deza's own thought process or him listening to someone else expounding at length i mean the the closest comp from the books i just mentioned would be in thus bad begins um where the discussion of how that relationship fell apart and that taking place over several chapters and and meandering along that is the closest version to that i would say but it's nothing compared to this one i mean as as i said there's the party there's the morning after the party there's his him starting to work for tupra's organization but in between there's a lot of deza's backstory a lot of wheeler uh, explaining what he did during the war, how he came to this point, who he is in relation to Toby um, Rylands, but just a lot of, I guess, the chewiness uh, of Marius, the way he he writes about thinking. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes it takes a little while for us to get to the party because Wheeler calls Deza up and invites him to this gathering. And says, have I ever talked to you about Tupra before? Oh, I'd be interested to know what you think about him. And of course, Des has been around Wheeler, you know, long enough to realize that, oh, you know, he's going to want to quiz me after the party about my impressions of Tupra, which is exactly what happens. I mean, you, the party kind of clips along pretty well, particularly with the um, with the Spanish diplomat who acts like a real clown um but then after the party when it's just wheeler and deza and they're sitting chatting that's when kind of everything really slows down and one thing that happens is that deza learns from wheeler and it's just kind of a quick comment that oh well you know don't you that i spent some time in your country during the Spanish Civil War. 
And that kind of results in Deza staying up all night, kind of pillaging, not in a destructive way, but just kind of going through all of Wheeler's books, all of these ideas and impressions come to him about the uh, history of Deza's own family and what happened to his father, a, a huge betrayal during the Civil War. And then, you know, just trying to understand or or kind of intuit maybe what Wheeler's role in the whole thing was. Yeah. And there's also, um, this is something you've pointed out in the past when we've had uh, uh, characters like 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 the member of the, the royal family. Um, what was he referred to as in uh, Tomorrow on the Bell, Think on Me? Do you remember what the well in in this in this one there is a uh, professor at Oxford who's uh, at the party uh, Rhymer I think the name is but his nickname is the Flask because of how much he drinks the flask, and at yes. one point he's the last one to leave the party because he can barely put one foot in front of the other and I believe he uh, he's referred to as once we finally got the receptacle um, out of the house and I'm like oh god that's so good that's such a that's such a great way of doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think there is a greater scope to this one, um, to this novel, than there is to a lot of the other works. All the other works are focused on one person. We get a very thorough accounting of Wheeler's activities and and what he thought and how his life has progressed. Um, we also do, as you said, get into a bit into Deza's father. And I mean, this is mirroring what happened to Marius's father, where he was arrested, was eventually freed by the woman that ended up becoming um, his wife and, and the mother of his children, and, and also that he would not be able to work moving forward. But it's made much, much clearer, or at least, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I guess, guess at it, ever, all the all the details of um the Maria's family history. But in this, it's made very clear that Deza's father was betrayed, that he was denounced very specifically, that uh, his name was put forward. And that person was, wasn't doing it because, uh, under duress, was doing it in order to hurt the man. And when questioned about that by um, his son, he pretty much says, like, I, I, I can't care about that part. Yeah, I think that one of the really interesting things that that Marias does here is not only kind of setting up Deza like for this career in being able to predict people's people's future behaviors, but also kind of having Deza look back and recall that he very much couldn't understand and tried to question his father on a number of occasions, although he knew it was very painful for his father. You know, listen, this informant, this guy that, that had you thrown in prison was your college friend. You know, it was someone that, that you knew, that my mother knew, that you guys hung out with. And, and really like you had never had like a suspicion that he could turn on you, that he was a duplicitous person, that he was just mostly out to, to promote himself. And he would really do anything, you know, kick anyone under the bus in order to do that. And, and yeah, it, you just really get the feeling that Deza just, just can't understand how his father didn't have some kind of, suspicion about about this person that states it much better than than how i put it. i think I, I misrepresented it a little bit but this is 
towards the tail end of that conversation, um, his father says, what that former friend had done to me was so unjustifiable, so inadmissible, and so grave from the point of view of friendship that everything about him instantly ceased to interest me. His present, his future, and his past too, even though I existed in that past. I didn't need to know anything more, and I had no wish to delve deeper. And to which Deza says, you're a better man than I am. Um, or if it isn't a question of better or worse, you're certainly freer and more astute. I can't be sure, but I think I would have sought to avenge myself after Franco died or whenever it would have been feasible to do so. So yeah, there is that element of Dezov, his inability to to let these, I mean, to frankly turn his gift off. He wants to project in the future, but he also, on some level, he, he also has a taste for the idea of revenge. I mean, there is the suggestion of uh, violence at different points in this novel, which perhaps makes him even more attractive to uh, to Tupra and what Tupra is capable of and, and interest in having having happen. Yeah, I don't think Tupper would be at all interested with in Desi's No, no, not one bit. <laughs> as an operative, because this guy was just kind of like, oh, you know, that happened. It was horrible for me. It was horrible for my wife, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dwell on it. Whereas Wheeler and Tupra and and Deza I mean, they're all about dwelling on someone's character. You know, what what motivates someone, what 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 someone is is thinking and and feeling and intuiting and how they perceive the world and how they react to different things. And yeah, it's um it, you couldn't it, you couldn't really imagine Des's father having a child more different <laughs> than Deza is from himself, it seems. I mean, do you think Deza's father is a bit like Muriel um, from this, That Begins in that respect? I mean, Muriel is curious, but he chooses not to pursue it out of a sense of loyalty and out of a sense of friendship. But I don't know. I feel like it's, there's certainly, and I think I'm seeing this on this reading more than I did the first time around. And I read it so long ago. I mean, yeah, I didn't even have children when that, when that, when this came out. Um, but there's so much more of the, there, there's such an undercurrent of the political in um, Marius's work that I think I'm seeing much more clearly through his considerations, his preoccupations in, in the later novels. But there, there's certainly an idea of like, what, what do you continue to prosecute? What do you continue to concern yourself with? Um, what is a better way to continue to, to exist and to, to live in the world? Which is a much more passive stance than, say, someone like, uh, like Tupra uh, would take um, as far as that, that sort of viewpoint. And, and on that kind of on that level of like, what, what do you do next? What does the future hold? There's a really great description when Tupra's first introduced that this is someone who could could see well, but also could, it suggests that he's able to make the futures that he sees happen. That part of his uh, seductiveness to uh, both men and women is that he wants them to be seduced by him in whatever register um, it is that he's interested in. And as a result, like he can make that happen, which is a really interesting trick there i think that the suggestion of him being able to embody that in in his own personhood yeah during this night where there's a barely sleeps wheeler eventually 
you know, goes off to, to bed. Dezo says, Dezo's staying the night there um, because the, the home is outside of London. And, you know, he says, well, I'm going to stay up. And he goes through the library. He drinks wine. He drinks coffee. He eats chocolates. And he's just like going over lots and lots of books, documents, and and remembering things, not not only personal things about his family, his father, but he's also like digging into other people that were betrayed, I would think, um, during the, the Spanish Civil War, like Andres Nin, who I have to say I didn't know anything about before I read this book the first time. And people that uh, that got caught up between the nationalists and the Republicans and um, were kind of caught in the crosshairs. And there's all kinds of passages that he reads about how Stalin was involved in the Spanish Civil War. And I'm not at anywhere near uh, knowledgeable about the Spanish Civil War, but it sounds like it was a really complex, <laughs> complex uh, situation. And I know that the scars of that war continued on through the country and perhaps still do even to this day. It was a very, it was a, it was a very brutal and decisive type of um, event for the country. One of the things that was happening throughout the war is that fighting against the fascists, you had this very strange conglomeration of ideologies. And even within those ideologies, you had a lot of competition. So Nin was associated with uh, Trotsky, which makes him undesirable as far as the Stalinists are concerned. Um, So you have the one side fighting itself as well. And Nin... Nin is disappeared, which for a novelist um, and for someone who creates characters that are so terribly interested in, in what comes next, the uncertainty of that sort of uh, disappearance, I think it's probably part of why it makes its way into this novel, especially considering um, Wheeler's own considerations of, uh, of death and, and mortality that keep cropping up. But I will also say that if you're curious about the Spanish Civil War, this book is a pretty great primer, or at least it gives you a lot of threads to pursue, um, especially if this wasn't something that you uh, spent any time with studying otherwise. Hugh Thomas uh, comes up quite a bit. He's a major historian of the war. I just, there are acronyms for a half dozen of the groups involved. So it's... uh, He's doing you a little bit of a, Maurice is doing you a little bit of a service and throwing some, maybe not much depth to it, but a lot of ground covered in terms of the internal squabblings uh, in the Civil War. Absolutely. So, you know, after this sleepless night, Dezo wakes up the next morning and goes down to breakfast rather late because he, he didn't go to bed until it was starting to get light outside. And Wheeler's there ready. He's ready to talk to him about what, well, I guess for lack of a better term, and it's going to sound cheesy, but about the gift, the gift that he thinks that Deza has and that he thinks that Tupra could really, could really use. And Deza at the time is working for the BBC as a translator and, you know, doing okay. Um, but he's intrigued by the possibility of, of working for Tupra, not only because it's a lot more money, but I think it's the kind of thing that, 
that interests him and also um, <laughs> something that resonates with a lot of people right now, like the, the schedule is very flexible. You know, he can, he has to be at the office sometimes, but he can also like take things, take things home. And it allows him to just kind of work, work at his own pace uh, with kind of studying these various characters that in many instances, at least in the beginning, he doesn't really know why Tupra has like brought him into some of these meetings or what conclusions Tupra is, is hoping that he, he gleans, but, um, but Tupra is very curious and interested in what Deza thinks when there are these meetings where Deza is there, you know, ostensibly as a translator, but he knows that he's there for more than just simple translation and interpretation. In terms of like the structure of the novel, this the majority of this conversation over breakfast, um, that clearly, given how much they talk, must go into the afternoon because I mean they talk forever. The more, majority of that takes place after we've already read about Deza's time and his introduction and his working with Tupra. So he's doing some he's doing some fun things structurally of giving us a little bit more information, but then backfilling it after the fact and. I don't know. It's it also does put a lot more of the emphasis of what's important in this novel on what Peter Wheeler is is talking about. But in his time working for Tupra, he starts working progressively more and more. Basically, becomes a full time employee. Um, he has colleagues um, like Mulryan and Newix who also weigh in. And Deza describes how he becomes even more as he gets used to the culture of the place and what's being asked of them, how he becomes even more decisive and fervent in what he thinks uh, is going to come next for this person or that person, Um, making some very strong declarations about whether they would kill, how they would want to die. Um, I think this person would absolutely um, murder his wife. I would stake my life on it. Those kinds of statements to, to further his reading his point. Um, there's a great bit about to like, it's only out last a couple pages, but it, it, it's paragraph after paragraph describing someone, but each paragraph is describing someone completely different. And you, you get this free flow of like, he is just tearing apart and ripping and like just destroying and rebuilding all of these people and their lives and what will come next for them in rapid fire succession. And so that gives this really I don't know. It's it's really kind of fascinating and fun. It's almost like reading um, Maria's writing character sketches in anticipation of a, of a novel or a short story or something. Well, it kind of make made me a little bit uneasy that Tupra, you know, Deza learns early on that Tupra is not interested and, in fact, doesn't want Deza to admit a lack of confidence in any opinion about any person, you know, saying like, you know, I'm not sure if he did this or I'm not sure there's a, there's a Latin American military junta guy that they interview and the guy wants money from the British government and super asks Deza, well, so do you think that this guy would, would he be willing to kill the for, the current leader in order for the junta to, to succeed? Or does he still have some feelings of loyalty because he served in the military under this person? And Deza is a little bit un, unsure, but he, he knows that Tupor doesn't want to hear anything that's 
wishy-washy, no gray, you know, just like declarative, like, yeah, he would, I know he would, or no way would he, uh, I'd bet my life on it. And it makes, it made me a little uneasy thinking, well, is this really the way, um, the British and the U S for that matter, intelligence services really work that, (laughs) that they don't, they don't, they don't foster any ambiguity and they just want these people to just say, an answer, any answer, but don't give me, I don't know. I mean, I hope not, but I think that probably is uh, largely the case. Like a, a firm answer is better than shades of gray. And also, I mean, you can also see the seductive quality of that. I mean, it, it's it's playing into Deza's strengths and his gift and his skills and is giving him free license to really let them rip, right? He mentions early on that that he can do this sort of thing before Wheeler really kind of puts a name to it. He's kind of reflecting on other aspects of his life and that he doesn't do it with his wife, Louisa, that he knew that it would ruin the relationship if he were to be guessing everything that's going to come next with her. But here unfettered from that life, he's able to, to use his skills to their maximum. I mean, it's interesting. We get almost a polar opposite in terms of skill set. Uh, in Thomas Nevinson, who can't see but can become anyone, and when given the ability to really go with that, he does. And he, I mean, he even, in some ways, he becomes exactly what Tupra needs him to be—a perfectly flexible agent who can become anyone he needs to be elsewhere. But underlying that is a firm belief in country, as it were. There's an interesting uh, linguistic back and forth when uh tupra and deza first meet tupra asks deza what he does what he does for a living and then about himself is very vague but says that he tries to employ his skills for the country because shouldn't one do that if if one's able to and deza reflects on the the idea of nation versus fatherland uh patria versus pais and i just reverse those patria would be fatherland pais would be nation then this context and deza i don't think quite clocks it at that moment but Tupra clearly views England as the fatherland, as the place that needs, uh, almost demands a um, re- religious level of of respect. I wanted to quickly um, point out what one of the things that Marius is so so good at, on top of everything else, is he has these he has these moments where he will just, with a bit of dialogue, really flesh out a character. And so when um, at the end of the party, at the party is ended and um, Wheeler is heading to bed and um, this is when Dezad decides that he wants to be up later and read more because he wants to look into a few things. Uh, and so Dezad says, I imagine you've got Orwell's homage to Catalonia and Thomas's history of the Spanish Civil War somewhere. I'd like to have a quick look at them. Um, and Wheeler responds with, almost everything about the Spanish Civil War is in there in the study behind you, the West Bookshelf. Then, irritated, he said in his scolding tones, I imagine, he says, I imagine. Of course I've got them. I am a hispanist, remember? And although I've written about centuries of greater interest and momentum, the 20th century is still my period too, you know, the one I've lived through. And yours too, by the way. It just, this sort of prickly 80-year-old, you know, Oxford Don, who we find out has also been a spy, has been all sorts of things in his life, just taking like, minor offense to the suggestion that he might not have something that of course he should have how dare you think otherwise it just 
I don't know. Wheeler is so generally calm and amiable that this sort of like little prickliness flaring up is really, I don't know. It, it does. It, I could see people that I've known in my life, uh, professors I've had, family members, like I could see that in that moment. And it was just, just really great. I just really wanted to, I don't know. I remember, I remember reading it the first time and loving that moment and reading it again. I'm like, oh yeah, don't be careful what you say to some folks because they can pick your words apart in a heartbeat, my friend. Well, two things about Wheeler. Um, he comes off as very likable to me in this volume. And and one of the things that I think um, is is kind of extraordinary, on page 80 of the book, and this goes on for a an entire page, is a description of Wheeler's eyes. Deza is describing Wheeler's eyes. And you couldn't find a more detailed description of someone's eyes, like in the most juicy romantic novel, you know, how maybe someone looked into someone's eyes and like fell in love. I mean, it's it's not at all goofy the way he does it, but it's just it's just incredible the amount of detail. And it's really kind of striking for here we're here we are talking about the eyes of an 80 or a 90 year old, and it goes on for an entire page. And then there's another, I think, thing that kind of contributes to the endearment that I think the reader can feel for for Wheeler. And I think that Deza also. I think he likes Wheeler a lot. Um, but there's this there's this notion of not letting go of their prey or or not letting go of the point that they really want to come back to or know in the course of a conversation because Wheeler and Deza and kind of all the characters in this book have very digressive conversations that will start somewhere and then just like go off. And I I can't tell you how many, how many times I had to go back and it would seem like Wheeler then had stated a, a non sequitur in the course of the conversation. And it was like, Oh, he's going back to the point that he started the conversation with 16 pages ago. And we're just now picking up, <laughs> picking up that point again now. So, um, but Deza does make this comment about Wheeler, about how sharp Wheeler is and about how they could talk for hours, but they're going to get back to the point that Wheeler started to make at the beginning of the conversation eventually. Yeah, and and Deza even suggests that there's almost something generational or are a little bit more old fashioned about it. That he's he's the kind of person from the 20th century that always will get back to the point he wants to make. Which I uh, I don't think I do. I, I think in these conversations, I, I read that and felt some uh, some criticism there because I feel like in these conversations, I kind of go off on tangents and don't always land us back on. Uh, on the point that we were trying to make. Um, I wasn't making a point. Uh, I, I know, no, no, I, I, I don't <laughs> think you were. I think Marius was. I think Marius was indicting us all in that moment, quite <laughs> frankly. Another element I think that endears us to Wheeler is that... Um, he is older 
and there's definitely a paternal quality to the relationship between Wheeler and, and Deza, uh, made more so by the fact that um, Wheeler seems to be developing something of an aphasia uh, as he's aging. He freezes up and is able to point or gesture or indicate what he wants, but the, the word won't come to him. The first time this comes up, it's he's asking for a cushion, but the word cushion just doesn't occur. And it happens again uh, towards the end of the novel. So there's also a there's a demonstration of his frailty and of what time is is doing to this really rather impressive, interesting person that it's uh, certain things are inescapable. Yeah, there's a um, there's a, a quite long conversation at the end of the book uh, between Wheeler and Deza. And um, the point is made that the dead are without words that they can't, they, they, they can no longer speak. They no longer have the ability to, uh, to express themselves. And that kind of Deza recognizes that as, as a sensitive point that Wheeler perhaps isn't just talking about, um, about actual, you know, dead people, but that he's feeling, he's, he's feeling himself being maybe a, s- slowly dying, perhaps starting this process of like not being able to express himself. The only ones who do not share a common language, Jacobo, are the living and yeah. the dead. But talking about speaking, um, the, <laughs> I think for me, the most fascinating part of this book is at the end, there's a lot of pictures of old timey fashion posters. I didn't know anything about this campaign before I read this book the first time. But during World War II, there was this careless talk campaign that happened. And Wheeler really uh, goes into quite some depth with Deza about this campaign. And you, you get the sense that Wheeler had some kind of role in in maybe, um, well, we know that he was an in intelligence um, during World War II. But do you want to kind of get into that, Tom, in terms of uh, what this campaign was and and kind of how it might affect this book and maybe the two that are to come? I mean, so the campaign was based around the idea that um, Nazi agents or enemy provocateurs could be anywhere. And this is... This is also built into, I think, something of the psychology of um, England, like just as a physical byproduct of them being an island that like they could always be invaded. They could they're not that big and that people are always going to try and find sneaky ways to, to get at them. The, the ocean is a barrier. So there are other means that are going to take place um, and a certain kind of jingoism that I think or isolationism that kind of kicks into them, especially around wartime. Um, a campaign like this didn't happen during World War One, but there was a, a pretty strong exodus of Germans uh, from uh, England uh, at the outbreak of World War One. Um, my family, um, I, my dad's uh, mom's family being one of them. Um, her father's butcher shop was burned wow. down, or something along those lines. But yeah, it's and then they end up in Lacrosse, La Wisconsin, um, which whole other story anyway um but this campaign during world war ii was based around the idea that there could be spies anywhere and that you must be careful with 
what you say and who you say it to. And if you are, and that not just if you possess information, you shouldn't say it to anyone other than those you're authorized to say it to you, but that in a way you kind of shouldn't talk to anyone because you may not even know that you have information, that these enemy spies are clever and they're pulling together all this info. And so if you say one thing about this happening over here and they heard something about that happening over there, they might put two and two together and know that something is coming. Um, so it just creates this real sense of paranoia um, that in a way drives a wedge um, between citizens. Like you're really not supposed to go outside of your group and in some ways, maybe even your group is suspect. Are you really sure you know everything about the other person? So it, in terms of what the novel is doing, it's guessing what's going to happen next. Like, how well do you actually know a person? Can you know for sure that the person that you're you know, proclaiming your love to today that is reciprocating will, will feel the same tomorrow? Can you know that the person that you're allowed to share a secret about D-Day with won't the next day turn out to be a German spy? Are you sure that your grocer is safe? So it's this really interesting examination of that kind of uh, paranoia and a security state, which they then pull up to, for when the novel is written, the the modern day uh, with, we were talking about what Tupra has mentioned to him maybe coming um, in the wake of what he calls the Twin Towers massacre. Um, A lot of what we now what we now live with, what we've found out over the years in terms of NSA spying and, and the like. So there's this there's an interesting paranoia that's being woven into um, the, the British fabric during the war. Um, and these posters are fantastic. Uh, an image of two people, like two women sitting on a train um, talking to each other behind them, like two rows behind them are clearly supposed to be German officers. And underneath it, it says, you never know who's listening. Careless talk costs lives. And careless talk costs lives is, is the, the catchphrase for all of this. Um, a few, another one, a few careless words may end in this and it shows a, a ship sinking. So yeah, like some very vivid imagery to strike home. Maybe put your head down and, and, and don't talk. Yeah, Wheeler collects these posters and he he shows them to um, Deza and many of them are included in, in the book. Um, it is, they are fascinating because the... <laughs> it look they look so rudimentary i think to our eyes because the caricatures are so blatant you know you can you can clearly see who's supposed to be the um the person in these posters that shouldn't be trusted um the villain so to speak but i also think that wheeler makes a really interesting point that this campaign during world war 2 kind of had some really unintended consequences. And one of the things that it did was it it kind of made a lot of people think that maybe they did have information, that maybe they were important, and it caused them to just blab even more than they normally would, just to talk to everyone about everything they knew all the time because for a certain type of person, it kind of 
um, bolstered their ego a little bit, you know, to be at a gathering and just talking a lot and having those loose lips, I guess, that supposedly sink ships and everyone else at the party kind of looking and like, wow, that guy seems to know a lot or he's saying a lot and, you know, he must be someone important or must be in the know. And yeah, it's, it's it was a really fascinating, I think, a study that, that Deza and Wheeler do of that whole kind of, of campaign and how it worked and didn't work. It's interesting, of course, right? Like, I'm sure that the, the posters, while rudimentary, got their point across very, very clearly um, and certainly instilled a certain sense of that. But then they, of course, have you know, the contrary effect, as, as you're describing. And, and I think, I don't know, and while you were talking about that, it made me think of actually, like, making everything top secret in the U.S. government. That's such a huge problem today that every, almost any memo can be, like, stamped with that, no matter what, what it contains or who sent it i mean there's something like what is it a million and a half people who have top secret various levels of top secret clearance in the united states and they make something like 10 million documents a year at this point top it's just it's just utter madness and most of it is just chatter like none of it's none of it's that important um at least a very small percentage of it is yeah if, if, if maria's had fast forwarded himself a bit more to talk Maybe he never would have wanted to, but talk about the social media age where everyone is talking all the time about everything they think is so important, despite most of it being the same thing and despite most of it being ultimately meaningless to anyone other than you. Yeah, I don't think he, he would have thought very highly or probably didn't think very highly of, uh, of, of this period in, um, in human talking. But it does also speak to uh, the consequences of speech, um, which is how he opens uh, the novel. As usual, he has one of his uh, his banger openings that just he immediately contradicts by the very existence of the opening. But um, one should never tell anyone anything or give information or pass on stories or make people remember beings who have never existed or trod the earth or traversed the world or who, having done so, are now almost safe and uncertain when I oblivion. So you should never talk, but Get ready for 1,200 plus pages of me talking all about this. <laughs> talking about not talking. Um, there is, uh, at the end of this volume, when um, when Wheeler and Des are talking about this um, careless talk campaign during World War II, that Wheeler um, mentions his wife a bit and the fact that she died during World War II, but we don't get a lot of details. And I'm wondering whether that, do you think that serves as a cliffhanger of sorts, Tom, in terms of maybe we'll learn more about what happened to her in the next volumes? Um, so just like a, a, a quick note, I've read all three. Lori is about to crash her way through the next two. So we're trying to be, I'm trying to be very careful about what comes up next. So um, we're just going to pass over that question in silence. Okay. All right. Tom is refusing to answer and I respect that refusal. I do want to, to talk a little bit about the subtitle. Mm. Um, all of these volumes of Your Face Tomorrow have a subtitle and this one is Fever and Spear. So why do you think that is the the subtitle? There are there's n- numerous references to 
fever and Wheeler's cane. He's holding his cane a little bit like a, a spear sometimes. Uh, umbrellas being held like a spear. Um, those two words together and how they relate to the book remain a bit ambiguous to me. Um, I will say that they remain a bit ambiguous to me too, even after all these years. Um, I, I do think the fever portion perhaps is, I mean, I think in some respects it's Deza becoming infected on a certain level with what his gift allows for. And then the spear being like it put into action. I mean, that also is part of what's taking place here and that, that, and that he kind of talks about a little bit um, is that he's saying all these things and he never knows what the outcome is, but he's saying all these things with such abandon and making such affirmative statements about what's going to happen next pertaining and and not just like, as in the case of the, uh, uh, the Venezuelan um, officer who may or may not be planning a coup, which we later find out may have been connected to an attempted overthrow of Hugo Chavez, but of all sorts of like private individuals even. And he's saying some pretty decisive things and clearly there's an outcome to it. He doesn't see the outcome. He doesn't get to know what the outcome is, but clearly there is something that happens next um, from his reports. So I, I, I kind of wonder if that's what he's kind of getting at in, in that respect. I don't know. I might do a little bit more deep diving or digging on um, some of the references uh, that are coming out of this one. Because also the only real, the only terribly substantial um, that I ever pick up on um, literary reference in this one is to Rilke and the Duino elegies. Um, but that's more the reflection on on death. I don't know. What did you take from Fever and Spear? Yeah, it was confusing to me. I thought maybe that night at Wheeler's, it seems like Des is kind of in a fever. You know, he's like, mm-hmm. he can't, he, he, he doesn't want to sleep. He's just kind of trying to figure out, you know, how was Wheeler involved in the, in the Spanish Civil War? And he gets kind of in a fevered state. I will say I mentioned the, the spear and references to, to an umbrella. So Deza being London is walking, you know, between his, his flat and, um, the nondescript office where Tupra does his thing. Um, a couple evenings, you know, um, at different times that we learn about and, he gets this distinct feeling that, you know, someone is following him. Uh, he hears footsteps. Every time he, he turns around, he just sees a woman walking a dog. And, you know, she, it all seems, you know, quite, quite um, innocent enough. But then, and again, I don't want to spoil anything, but this woman with the dog shows up um, kind of at the end of this volume. And we learn that, he actually knows this woman. So I don't know whether that the umbrella is a symbol of something that was like covering and, and now re- revealed. I don't know. I don't know where to go with, with this, with this, but, um, but yeah, it's just, it, it's just always, it, it remains ambiguous to me. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and to me, um, Imagine also when these came out, I mean, I, I grabbed this one and read it immediately. And then the next one is dance and dream. And I'm like, well, what the hell does that mean? Like, <laughs> what, what is coming? What is coming? Are we get, what are we going to be doing next, Javier? Um, 
There is. Speaking of dance, and I don't want to, uh, to I, I feel like maybe I'm just like jumping all over the place here, but there is a really interesting uh, recurring thing here where Deza's neighbor, who he can see, you know, in, a, in the building across the street from him, um, when the guy's got his, his I, maybe the guy doesn't even have drapes or shades, I don't know, but um, this guy dances and he he dances by himself a lot. Sometimes he has friends that come over and dance with him. Desa can't hear the songs that they're dancing to, but he can kind of intuit just based upon like what type of dancing is, is being done. But it is kind of interesting that Desa just is very fascinated with this guy and is always watching him. And he remarks that this guy feels like his biggest challenge because he just cannot like interpret or understand this guy who's probably not doing anything but having a good time and just like, you know, living a carefree moment at the end of his workday, but um, he's just impenetrable to Deza. Yeah, that's interesting. That's I. That's a really good way of looking at it. I mean, it's because when Deza does his work, when they all do their work, because we also hear from um, some of the other members of the team um, weighing in, they're they're making these declarative statements, but they're like they're really reflecting on major decisions or choices that the person that they're examining might might make or take they're not going into the this the quiet moments in someone's life they're not guessing that this person might like uh bonsai you know that this person might be like an absolute like a, a t- you know is a buttoned up businessman during the day and a total metalhead at night like they're not going into those things they're 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 painting with very broad strokes and not to say that they're not correct largely or accurate but they're really reducing what other people are in in this process um in kind of in much the same way that like that campaign was reducing your fellow citizens into potential spies um which i think is also why Wheeler's sort of background is so interesting and wh- why it's so full here. I mean, I think you've got in some ways a, a full life tale. I mean, and but with lots of things left out, like like the fate of Val, um, uh, Wheeler's wife. But I mean, one of the things that you find out from Wheeler is that his uh, last name was originally uh, Rylands and that Toby Rylands, Deza's original um, contact mentor at oxford uh is his brother and that their parents got divorced and wheeler is uh their mother's maiden name and um peter went with that uh toby rejected it and went and lived with their father and they were separated and rejoined as as grown men but these these two men who had been so critical and important in that compartment of um deza's life He'd never known that they were brothers. I mean, they even lived next door to each other um, in Oxford. Yeah. And and speaking of, like, they seem, like, very, very quintessentially British. They both, you know, they both were uh, professors at Oxford. They both served MI6 or MI5 or, you know, fought, fought for the Brits in World War II to you know in some type of intelligence gathering capacity but um 
they were born in New Zealand. So they're, <laughs> they're not even, you know, British nationals. Right. And I mean, at the, when, um, when Wheeler is suggesting to, uh, to Deza to come to the party, he goes into this long thing about Tupra's name and how, uh, how weird it is. And, and it made me immediately think of Tomas Nevinson, but then also Deza's first name is Jock. Like that's not a standard Spanish name. So he's constantly playing Marius with these notions of identity and uh, almost cross nationality in some respects. I mean, in one of our first episodes, you brought up the Englishness perhaps of uh, Javier Marius in terms of how he writes and what his considerations are. So yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting and quite interesting how like those elements kind of tie back into, I I think that kind of ties back into your point about the, the dancing man across the way that, People contain multitudes and are comprised of so many different, very strange um, influences. And yeah, you might be able to guess what they'll do when presented with a gun and, you know, someone holding a knife to uh, someone you care about. But will you really know who they are on a certain level? Which also ties into the conversations he has with his father about the denunciation. So. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's the combination of the unknowableness of other people, but the constant, incessant need to know and to understand and to pry back, pry back that lid ever so much more. Well, I'm really looking forward to continuing the conversation on on volume two of Your Face tomorrow. I think it's going to be, it's going to be fun, and everyone that I know that's that's read all three of these just keeps talking about how. They just get kind of, each one gets progressively better. So um, I love the first one. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I don't, I know you will not be disappointed. I also think we should both uh, be ready to talk about our uh, favorite dance songs and um, some of our most recent dreams when we get into it. Okay. It has nothing, nothing to do with the novel, but just because of the name. Why not? <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Tom. Right. Thanks, Lori.